You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is a thread that connects a story to an audience? Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. In the second half of this episode, Jerry Ferretti stops by. He knows a lot about the world of independent filmmaking, and we'll have an interesting conversation because prior to starting, we already had a lot to talk about. So he'll be joining us in the second half of this episode. Well, we start with Joseph Cannon. Joseph Cannon's new book is called The Accomplice. Joseph Larry Davidson, you're welcome to the episode. Nice to see. Nice to be with you again. All right, I want to go back to the beginning. And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of November 2019, the New York Times had this article. Fourth spy unearthed in U.S. atomic bomb project. So I want to talk about the beginning with you. Los Alamos, does this new story resonate with you based on your first book? Oh, sure, absolutely. A, a number of people sent me the link to it, and I said, didn't I always say? It was, you know, my first novel was called Los Alamos, and its premise is that there was a spy there whom we don't know about. And it turns out there were certain spies that we didn't know about. There may yet be more revealed. I'm not sure. I doubt it. But um, sure, it resonated in the sense that I had always thought that was the great story there, the, the backstory, so to speak. Now, you changed careers later in life. You were in the publishing business. Was it an audacious attempt on you to say, I can write, I can do this? Well, so much so that I didn't tell anybody because I thought it would be too embarrassing if I were wrong. And, you know, what could what could be worse than a publisher who can't write and who's passing judgment on all these books? But I'd had the idea for Los Alamos and I thought it was intriguing and it sort of took me over. And I just secretly decided to see if I could do it. And in fact, when I was finished, I used a pseudonym on it when I approached an agent because I wanted a cold reading. You know, when you read something by someone you know, you inevitably hear their voice in it. Right. And I just wanted this to be a pure take. Anyway, it was all very lucky because the book worked and I midlife changed careers and went to the other side of the desk and became a writer. And here we are nine books later. I want to go back to your other books. We sat down and had a conversation about this one. It became a major Hollywood film with George Clooney and Kate Blanchett. And the book was called The Good German. And I want to refer to the review from the New York Times because this says an awful lot about you. It says, Canon is fast approaching the complexity and relevance, not just of La Carrier and Green, but even of Orwell, realized fiction, that explores, as only fiction can, the reality of history as it is lived by individual men and women. I want to talk about uh, Green, first of all, because he is famous for his opening paragraphs. He's celebrated for his opening paragraphs, Graham Greene. How difficult was for you in this book and other books to shape your opening paragraph? You know, I, it's it's an interesting question. It sounds like something you spend a lot of time over, but actually they have always come relatively easy to me. I think it's much more difficult to do endings, but the opening paragraph in which you are I, I like to start in media race. I like to start where the story has already begun and you're jumping into it rather than setting it up with a lot of description. And for me, that's usually working dialogue in very, very soon. I, my books rely heavily on dialogue because I think dialogue effectively is character and is action. And when people speak, they reveal themselves. So there's a lot of that. Um, look, I, you know, that review you quoted has to be my favorite all-time review. It's exactly everything I'd ever hoped to do in a book. And if I did it for that reviewer, I, I guess I can die happy. But it was, but I'd like to keep doing it. So there's the difference. All right. So for The Accomplice, I read the review by Joseph Finder, who's a great writer himself. Terrific writer. Very popular. Has a big audience in terms of readership. And I don't sleep that much. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm up. When I get up, I tend to go to the DVR and pick out a program. So I picked out uh, a program about singing competitions, The Voice. And they're going through the background to all the contestants. And I realize all the contestants are talking about the role that family plays in their personal journeys. And as I said, Joseph Finder's insights are far beyond my own. But this is the one insight that came out for me about how the book resonated for me beyond the obvious. It's a book about family, 
the family of man and the family about the individual people you write in this book. Would you take issue with that? No, I think that's true. Um, you know, look, there's always the upfront story, which I hope is entertaining and keeps people up at night and is, is plot-based. And, you know, there's a resolution and an end, and I hope it's reasonably exciting. But that isn't really why one writes these books. You know, there are other themes or other concerns that are so much more important, or at least are the ones that hold you in thrall and that you work out. And one of the things that interested me this is about an escaped um, Nazi war criminal who hides out in Latin America. Right. And one of the things that fascinated me about these people, and there were many of them who escaped and lived there, is the relationship they had with their families. I mean, how many of them knew? How many didn't know? Once they did know, if you were one of the children, how did you feel about it? This wasn't just hearing that your beloved father had once been in prison or had committed a crime. These were among the most reviled war criminals in all of history. And this was dad. So how did, how did that work out? And I was absolutely fascinated by that relationship. In the book, it's actually a daughter of a war criminal and who has decidedly mixed feelings and who essentially is going to be wounded and a broken person because of this uh, relationship without her having anything to do with it. In American history, during the Civil War, before and I guess even after, there was something called the Underground Railroad. In terms of what you write about, what was the rat line? The rat line was the um, slang term that was given for um, a loose association of people who would help the Nazis escape. Now, this was not um, a formal organization the way it was in the fictionalized book, The Odessa File. But I was curious to see, you know, what sort of a unofficial Odessa file what was there? Because there had to be help. You couldn't, even in the chaos of post-World War II Germany, you couldn't just get on a boat and sail for South America. There were customs and forms to fill out and legalities and name changes and fake IDs and a whole bunch of stuff that you needed just to be able to get on a boat in the first place. And I thought, who was doing this? In the Odessa file, it is a group of not of ex-Nazis who are all working in concert to help each other. But in reality, the people who were really helping, who were really forming a kind of Odessa network, were the Argentines themselves under Perón, the, the great fascist dictator who had been a Hitler sympathizer during the war. And after the war, he actively recruited some of these people to come to Argentina. Often they were... Uh, consultants to the Air Force or military attaches, etc., etc. But often they were people who had no conceivable military or state use at all. They just happened to be Nazi war criminals, and he would put the resources of his government to help them out. You're, you're a respected novelist. You also consider yourself an historian, in a sense, in terms of your research and what interests you in terms of shaping the narrative of your books. Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, I wouldn't be so grand as to call myself an historian, but I think that um, certainly I'm an amateur historian. My wife says that whenever I decide on a book, it's like I sign up for a graduate course, that it's <laughs> something I know a little about but want to know more about. And for about a year, I just go to school on it and read everything I can. And usually, and this is the pleasurable part, um, go to the place where the story is set. Sometimes my book actually start with the place. Um, I wrote a book set in Istanbul, and that all came about because I had gone there as a tourist and was completely captivated by it and wanted to write about it. In this book, of course, it's Buenos Aires, and I went twice. And often what this is, I don't mean to suggest that I go to Buenos Aires and I immerse myself in archival research. I mean, aside from anything else, I don't have the language and I couldn't do that. But what, I, what they are for me is to get a real sense of place. It's almost like location scouting. Right. In a, you want to know where your characters lived. Could they walk to work? Would they need to take a tram or a bus? Just all these day-to-day -day details that may or may not ever appear in the book. But if they're not in your head, they're not real to you. And therefore, they'll never be real on the page. So I think they all count. You said something, you believe in dialogue. Dialogue is very important to the book as well as, as movies. And I think about the power of words 
And there's something I call the language of blood. And a lot of your characters in your book, at least some of the characters in your book, including one of the main females, the daughter of, a, of the camp director that did the experiments at, at Auschwitz, is multilingual. And what I thought about is, and this may be apropos or not, feel free to, to absorb this and respond, is I wondered, because she speaks different languages, what language does she think in when she's communicating? Well, that's that's the, the central question. I mean, there is a scene in the book where she says, um, do you want to know the Spanish me? Do you want to know the German me? Do you want to know the English me? Because we are different people in different languages. I don't think that, uh, I mean, language becomes its own universe, its own wor world. And if you begin to think in English as well as speak in it, you'll ultimately begin to dream in it too. Um, I think it's often just a question of use. It is, however, in this sense, it was very useful because it was a way of her acknowledging that she contains more than one person. She's not schizophrenic, but her life has been torn in so many different directions that the multilingualism is often a metaphor for her own psyche. She can be one thing one minute and 10 minutes later, somebody else. Now, there's a big figure out there in terms of the Holocaust. Six million Jews and gypsies and others were murdered during that time frame. And I sat down years ago with a writer named Daniel Mendelssohn, who wrote a book called The Lost, A Search for Six of the Six Million. And what he did fascinates me, and I think you do this in your book too. Six million is a number that we can't necessarily comprehend in our daily existence. We know it's there, but it's difficult to process. But it's easier to process, in his case, the search for six of six million, or in your case, just the characters in your book wrestling with the aftermath of the Holocaust. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. I, you know, it's, it's a, now a sort of well-known trope that six million is a number. One, or a statistic, one is a person. And we have to imagine this story of murder being repeated six million times. It's almost beyond comprehension. And even now, 60, 70 years later, we, we have such trouble coming to groups with the enormity of this crime. I, you know, I wanted to make the Nazi in this book, the war criminal, a rounded character in the sense that you see he has several sides to him. But at no point do I ever want us to take our eye off the main ball, which is that this man committed unspeakable acts, that these, these people were truly guilty. You know, what prompted this book in my head, I think, was that I had been researching the previous book called Defectors was set at the height of the Cold War. And I research a book, I like to know what was in the newspaper, what would people be talking about, what was the normal conversation. And one of the things that was happening that year, this is 1960, 61, was Adolf Eichmann, the, his capture, yep. um, or as the Argentines would say, his kidnapping, and then his subsequent trial in Jerusalem. And I was reading an accounts of this, and it's an absolutely fascinating story just in and of itself. And I realized that I had lived through this. I remembered it at the time, but I was a teenager then, and I suppose didn't pay it the kind of attention it really deserved. And now when I look back on it, I see what an extraordinary, pivotal event this was, because up until then, there had been very, very little public conversation about the Holocaust. This opened up a whole can of worms, it caused um, an international conversation about the enormity of this crime. This is when Hannah Arendt went to Jerusalem and wrote her famous book about Eichmann, where she coined the phrase, yes. the banality of evil. Yes. And I thought, this is all interesting, this is all fine, I don't want to do the Eichmann story, it's been done, and other people have done it. But what struck me as I was reading it was, what took them so long? We're talking about 15 years later, and of course the fast glib answer is that nobody was looking very hard. This then caused me to go further and think, what was that like? What was it like if you were one of these Nazis sort of hiding in plain sight, and all of a sudden Eichmann is snatched off the street, and you realize that after all these years, you are not safe, that you too, if, if they can do Eichmann, they can do you. Now, in fact, they had no plans to do other people. They were 
busy at home and you know managing small budgets etc right. but if you were if you were one of the nazis you didn't know that and all that all that would happen then would be a huge fear that would strike through that community and that seemed to me interesting and something that hadn't really been covered and and that was the way in that was the lens in so to speak I'm Larry Davidson, listening to Artful Periscope. My guest is the author of The Accomplice, Joseph Cannon. Now, you've been described as being cinematic, and I'm going to throw a couple scenes out that resonated with me in the book um, because I think this speaks movie, 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 just like the good German. There's a scene when Dr. Weil arrives with his son at Auschwitz and gets off the trains and... The Nazi doctor knows him from back in Germany, Dr. Otto Schramm, and he pulls him out of the line because he asks for all doctors to get out of the line, but he separates Dr. Weil from his young son. That is a very dramatic telling of what you write about. What was your thought process? It was, is, and is it truly cinematic in your mind? Well, I think the whole book is cinematic in the sense that I conceive things in scenes and, you know, I think we're all deeply influenced by movies. But in this particular scene, uh, it's again um, an, an, a reiteration, so to speak, of what we were talking about before is how do, you, how do you make a statistic personal? How do you make it about one person? And I thought we have all seen the scenes of people jumping down off those trains, being lined up. We see the selection process. It's very well known a kind of thumbs up, thumbs down thing of people being condemned to death right right then and there on the spot, right in front of everybody. And I thought, but what if it happens to one child? What if it happens to someone that you care about? It's no longer just a big overall scene. It becomes, let's if we want to use the cinematic terms, now it's a close-up. Right. All of a sudden, we begin to see the emotional baggage. And for this wicked or evil, or whatever bad word we want to use for this Nazi, for him to knowingly separate this child and consign him to death while he is talking to the father and lying to the father seemed to me something so beyond the pale that it would immediately isolate this character as a, as a true uh, evil person. And it was important for the drama that, that he be such. I don't, I don't, you know, these books are not to get anybody off the hook. These were unspeakable crimes, and they deserve to be brought to some kind of justice. But yet again, as in The Good German, the novel we referred to earlier that became a movie, the great underlying theme there is how do you render justice for a crime so immense that we, we still have trouble wrapping our heads around it? What could be the punishment? Yep. On the other hand, you can't just give it a pass. You know, Some form of justice has to be rendered or at least conceived of, and this fell to the Allies. And I thought there were such interesting questions there is, who gets to judge? Um, who writes those rules? How, how, where do you draw the line? Do you, every concentration guard camp, every concentration camp guard, or the people who were ultimately um, instrumental in administering this? I mean, there's Eichmann in his glass box, and he has become the symbol of yes. the Holocaust. But in fact, he's an administrator. He's somebody, there's a German word which essentially means desk murderer, and it means you're carrying out these acts from your desk. And that was him. But what about this sadistic guard that's kicking some child and, and uh, killing them on the spot? Or, you know, people would go up to, and just blow people's brains out. You know, the, the number of horror stories is almost limitless. And it and it keeps going and it keeps going. And I think it's really important as a kind of moral imperative that we who are the inheritors, not the survivors, but the next generation and the next generation after that, eventually the people who were in the Holocaust are all going to be gone. And with them, their own trace memory. And I think something needs to be handed down or will fall into the trap again. You touch upon something that resonates with me in, in a very big way, because one of the other interviews I did over the years in the same studio you've been in in the past, and so you will be coming up with this next interview for my television program, Davidson and Company, I sat down with a two-part interview with Thomas Black, 
Thomas Blatt at the time was one of the last living survivors of Sobibor, a Nazi death camp. I think he's since passed away. And he told a story that he used to sneak out at night and go to the shed where they kept the dog biscuits for the guard dogs and bring them back to feed the people. And your main character in the book, Dr. Weil, is also a Holocaust survivor. So my experience has been when I did his interviews in the past, when I think of the film The Pawnbroker starring Rod Steiger, they don't want to share their memories, especially with family members. They may talk to a stranger, but they won't talk to family members. And when Thomas Blatt came into my studio and shared his story, that was almost a breakthrough for me as well as him. What is your thought about the role that Holocaust survivors have and the burden That's, that they carry? It's very true what you say. And look, one can easily understand the impulse to put everything behind you. One can easily understand the impulse to just move on with life, to get away from this. And I think from about 45 to, in fact, to Eichmann, to about 1960, there was a great forgetting. And this forgetting was, in a sense, convenient for everybody. It was certainly convenient for the German government, who was in, at that point employing ex-Nazis. It was convenient for the American counterintelligence corps who had used some of these war criminals because they had information about the Soviets. You know, there, there are endless strands of complicity and compromise and then outright guilt that uh, attends this story. I don't at all blame Holocaust survivors for not wanting to talk about it. I think these memories are theirs and all we can do is pay, pay the right amount of respect. But I think being able to collect as much as we can, being able to have this body of evidence is one of the bulwarks we have against it being repeated. And consequently, it's very important. It's one of these things that just shouldn't be forgotten. You, you, you can't, we as the inheritors can't move on. We have to have this as part of our history. In terms of the art and craft of storytelling, in terms of what you do in terms of spy thrillers and spy books and espionage, are there any limits to what you can do in terms of the books that you write? Well, I hope not. <laughs> you know, I mean, you would like to think that you can do everything. There are, within the genre, there are certain rules that have to be played by. Um, you can't do 20 pages of scenic description. You know, you have to, I, I think that there's something about thrillers as a genre that keeps you honest as a writer. You have to constantly pay attention to story. And story may not be at the end of the day or 10 years later what people remember from it, but it's certainly what they're reading as they read. You know, you, you have to be fair. You have to give the entertainment that has been required in right. storytelling. Everything else is a bonus. Everything else is, you know, I often say to people, look, if you enjoyed the book, that's fine by me. If you enjoyed it, but it also raised some questions for you that you're thinking about, then I've hit the trifecta. This is everything that I really want out of writing these books. So who do you think your audience are? Who reads your books? I mean, you understand demographics. You come from the publishing world. You understand how to market a book. Who do you think your readers are beyond me and my listeners? I think there are people like you and your listeners. Um, you know, look, one would love for everyone to read them, but that's impractical and not really likely in this world. Um, I think they tend to be um, both sexes. I mean, whenever I do bookstore events, I'm always delighted to see that it isn't just men. You know, it's men and women. Um, I think that they are people who are interested in, we now call it history. I just call it the immediate past. You know, right. these, these are periods we live through. But I think it certainly appeals to um, mature readers who have an interest in that period. You know, I'm a big fan of British TV and British movies. What is the difference between – I love Luther, by the way. I don't know if you followed Luther on BBC. It's one of my favorite television programs. Right. What is the difference between British espionage books and American espionage books? Because we are two different countries and different histories and different time frames. Are there differences? Uh, in the final analysis, they're not major differences, but they're curious to look at when they're subtle differences. I think that English writers on the whole are more interested in investigating character. And I think that American writers tend to emphasize the action part of that. 
from the if that were the paradigm that operates, then I guess I would err on the side of the British. I'm much more interested in the character um, than in you know any kind of shoot 'em up sort of rousing scene. But I think there are also national events that forever flavor some of these genres. And in Britain, for instance, the great story, the great espionage story that nobody could quite grapple with at the time were the great defections of Philby and Burgess and McLean. I mean, to be internally betrayed, to have, and consequently, I think a great theme that works its way through British um, thriller writing is betrayal. And it's about the betrayer, the people who feel betrayed, etc. On the American side, I think the national event that just seared itself into our consciousness um, was the Kennedy assassination and other assassinations. And what they provoked was a whole rash of books that were about conspiracy. Right. I think that the notion of conspiracy becomes a very American kind of theme that works through all this. But fundamentally, if there is a difference, and I would hate to... Um, draw a black and white line because I think essentially a good book is a good book and you know where whatever culture it's coming out of but I think there is a case to be made that they are more character driven and we are more action driven um, I want to switch gears a little bit when I speak to writers I often ask where do you do what you do do you write at home in a home office do you have a separate place like they used to have in the old cottages in Hollywood where they went to work your story is a little different. Where do you write your books? I write, this is an easy question. I write, in fact, I have written all of my books um, at the New York Public Library, the big one on 42nd Street. And I love going there. I mean, I don't work at home. First of all, my wife works at home. And I was used all my life to getting up and going, going out to work, going to another place. And so I use that as an excuse to walk to work to get some exercise and also think about it as I'm on my way. Um, the library itself is beautiful. Right. It's got every conceivable resource when I'm doing my research, so it's lucky from that point of view. And I feel extraordinarily privileged to be able to use it. It's, it's just a great resource. So what is your writing day like? Do you sit down and write X amount of words? Do you write for four hours? How do you do it? You arrive, you sit down, I, you look at what you did yesterday, and usually you go over that and correct it and uh, change it. And that constant, you know, that's the first few hours. You're just putting to bed what you did the day before. And by that time, you are almost into that fugue state where you're <laughs> actually creating and you're actually ready to write more. And you, I usually arrive at, I don't know, 10, 10.30. And I leave it about four. So that's, I find that after that, um, there's just, you run out of energy. There's just not enough um, juice to keep it all going. But you can get quite a lot done in, in that period. And then I walk home. Now, how do you satisfy your own intellectual curiosity? Obviously, it shows up in your books, what interests you. Beyond that, what do you do? How do you kind of fill up that brain space when you're not writing? Well, when I'm not writing, um, I'm reading all the time. I'm certainly traveling. I I'm, I'm love travel. And I think it's one of the great broadening experiences, aside from being fun. So there's a great deal of planning, um, getting to that. But mostly it's reading. I, You know, yes, I watch uh, TV, as we all do. And yes, I go to the movies. I love movies. Uh, I go to the theater. Certainly, I go to art exhibits. You know, the whole smorgasbord of what's available to us in New York. It's one of the reasons that we all live in the greater New York area. There's just so much available. But if there was a primary um, intellectual endeavor, it's almost invariably reading. I, I think it's, you never run out of books. There's, there's just always something that you haven't read, um, something new that's come, and something important. And when I start a book, I'm usually on a tear because there's some subject that I just want to read everything I can about. And so the books just fill up. So here's, you, here's my last question. Yeah. What was the first book you ever took out of the library? What resonated with you? What stood out as your first childhood book, if you do remember? 
I think the honest answer is that I probably don't remember the very first book I took out, but it would have been something like Bambi. It probably would have been a version of a Disney book. By the time that I was able to select books, that's to say I was, what, seven, eight years old or something like that, um, it would be the Hardy Boys. I thought the Hardy Boys were just the coolest people I had ever read about, and there they were with these motorboats and cars and solving mysteries, and they were just cool. So I thought the Hardy Boys were it. Well, we'll leave it at that. My guest has been Joseph Cannon. His new book is called The Accomplice. Joseph, thank you so much for spending some time with us. My pleasure as always, Larry. After a break, Jerry Ferretti joins the conversation. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest in studio right now is Jerry Ferretti, founder and director of the New York Long Island Film Festival. And Jerry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Larry. Pleasure to be here. So here's the obvious question. First time mm-hmm. film festival. Mm-hmm. I went the first night. Thank you for the invitation. What was it like putting it together? It was an amazing experience that, that uh, was everything that we dreamed of. Um, it was just an absolute pleasure from start to finish. Talk about the process because a lot of films, it was Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Is that correct? Yes, it was Thursday night, Friday, Saturday night, and then we did a Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon block as well. It was conceived because, uh, as you know, I'm an independent filmmaker, and I've had my film out in festivals, and I decided to create this festival because I wanted to give an opportunity to independent filmmakers that I felt were being overlooked. So the analogy I always use is, as I'm also a musician, I, I say when Elvis walked into a studio in 1955, 1954, and he had an old beat-up guitar on his back, and he played That's All Right, Mama, someone paid attention to him, and he became the biggest recording star the world has ever known. I feel that there's a lot of storytellers in film that are being overlooked because they may not have the best equipment or the most money behind them. So it it appears to me as someone in this business that we may be overlooking that diamond in the rough, that creative talent that might not have the resources. So I wanted to create a film festival, a grassroots film festival that would open doors and give opportunity to those filmmakers as well as the ones who might have the connections or the money behind them. And that's why I created the New York Long Island Film Festival. So how did the films come to you? Did you go out and search? Did they come to you? What was your process? Well, I had the pleasure of meeting the owner of the Seaford Cinemas, who also owns some other movie theaters, and I premiered my film there two years ago at his other theater in Sayville. And I approached him and said, I'm thinking of doing this film festival. Would you be interested in doing this? And it was only about six months before the opening night, and he was totally into it. He said, let's let's do this. Let me know what you need. So it was only about six months to prepare so we utilize social media a lot, right. and we utilize the network of Film Freeway, which is the network uh, that all film festivals basically get submitted through. If you're interested in a film festival, you would first go to Film Freeway and research the available film festivals. There's actually about 7,000 film festivals currently around the world. That's a lot. Wow. Right. So we created a website, and I... Uh, went on Film Freeway and contacted them, and they told me what I needed to create this uh, to meet their criteria. And I basically said, let me see what happens just being on Film Freeway, using my connections and my social media and the people I know in the film industry and the theater world, and see what the next six months could bring. And then if it's successful, we will hit the ground running in 2020. And we were overwhelmed, overwhelmed with responses, and uh, we started getting films from all around the world. Uh, we, we've got films from Australia, from New Zealand, from Iraq, from Turkey, from Canada, and all around the country as well. So w- we were pleasantly surprised 
And as we started to watch the films, and I compiled uh, judges from people that I know, again, in the film industry and the theater world, and we proposed to these people, would you like to become involved in this and let them know exactly what it's going to entail? Because it could entail watching numerous films in, in our spare time and having meetings and discussing what's going on. And, and uh, I, I found a great group of people. And like I said, we, we uh, received so many films, many really, really well done films that were so surprising when you see the, again, the the lack of budget, the lack of resources and the incredible stories that were being told. And it made me realize that we did, we achieved our goal, which was to bring these films an opportunity to be shown on the big screen, which a lot of the festivals I found don't do that. They're in a VFW hall, they're in a bar, they're in a restaurant. And we had this incredible resource, thanks to the people at Seaford Cinemas, to allow these people to show their films on the big screen, which was rewarding for us to give that opportunity to these filmmakers. And one of the best moments, I think, of the whole thing was we had a film by a young gentleman who uh, made a, a short film called The Participant, and it's, it's a comedy. He was actually thinking of getting out of the business because he was getting so frustrated. And he actually won the award in our festival for the best comedy. And he came to us afterwards in the interview and said that this has completely turned him around. He started making films because they made his grandmother smile. <laughs> I like that. And now he says, you don't know what this festival did for me. And he's he contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said he's working on his new film and he just wanted us to know. And it just makes me feel really good to be able to have that kind of impact. There's a word for that that's called validation. Now, every filmmaker wants to have a lot of money to make their film. I think of the Brothers McMullen that didn't have a lot of money initially, and then it was seen, I think, at Sundance, and then a lot of money came in. But we explore the new craft of storytelling on these episodes that we do for the Artful Periscope, the podcast. Now, I think not having money is also a blessing because it forces you as a filmmaker and a storyteller to be creative. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Jay Leno, I read once where when he was doing The Tonight Show, he refused to change his desk or his chair. or I have that story. Yeah. It, right, because he wanted to stay hungry. He wanted to stay the way he was when he started. And I've always remembered that story because I guess you, you reach a point in your life where you start looking at material things. I, I recently went shopping with my daughter. We looked at things and said, we don't need that. We don't need that. We have that. We don't need that. And it was it's almost like you, you're bombarded with things in life and you start to go, well, what do I really need? I know for me, what I need is to be able to create, whether it's a, a story, a song, a film festival, and be able to see people enjoy it. There's nothing greater than when you create something from the ground up and then watch the audience reaction and involvement in that story. Now, you mentioned your daughter. I'll mention my daughter, who's now a grad student at the University of Delaware and a very gifted student. I said, no matter what you do, be passionate about your life and your future beyond your career. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a word that I'm hearing almost echoing with you, and you haven't quite said it. But I think you need to be passionate about something. It's so true. And congratulations on your daughter, by the way. Uh, if you look at the website... For my film festival, it says, we don't care what kind of budget you have. We don't care if you made this on an iPhone or if you made it with $5 million. We just want filmmakers who are passionate about what they're making, that are hardworking storytellers. Because when you get right down to it, filmmaking is a storytelling medium. And it doesn't matter whether you film this on an iPhone or if you use the best Sony RED camera or, or what editing software you have. Of course, that stuff is important in the long run. But what it starts with is a, is a story. Uh, you had a, a, an author on previously, um, and, and I was listening to what he was saying, and, and very, uh, very, I agree with everything that he was saying. And he also touched on character and how everything is about uh, character for him. And I agree. You take story and you take good characters. That's important. And I think what's happened a lot, because the technology has increased in quality so much, there are a lot of filmmakers that are making films because they can, but what is it you're trying to say? That's important as well. <laughs> I mean, really, when you get right down to it, it's more important. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing it correctly, you can, but necessarily you need to, should be able to tell the story. Not uh, We know technically people can tell stories, but should the story be told? Now, here's the question I pose to you. Is movie making 
shorts and full-length features? Is it a director's medium because you got to go and post and edit, or is it an actor's medium? I think it's a it's a medium for everybody. For a long time, I had trouble realizing that I can wear many hats. It almost feel, felt like you had to be something in particular. I have a brother who's a teacher, another brother who's a lawyer. For me, I was looking at it going, well, I want to be a director, but I'm also passionate about writing. I'm also passionate about music and acting. So I believe you can be passionate about all of this, and the medium supports it all. Uh, We tend to be a little misdirected in who, as an audience, we, I don't use the word, word worship, but... Having been in this business now, I look at it and say, we always look to the, the actor, the right. name actor. Up and then front, we, they're up front in front of your face. That's right. That's who we see. And then it's the director. You know, this is directed by a Scorsese or Spielberg or whatnot. But the amount of credit that deserves to be put on the editors and the musical scores of films and all of these things that have such an impact on, on what the viewer is seeing, and they often get overlooked – but you could, if you take a movie that you love and take the music out of it, it will have a completely different effect. You could take the footage from a film where it's been an Academy Award film. If you went back into the editing room, you could edit that movie where they would all look terrible just from alternate scenes or outtakes or mistakes. So there is a tremendous amount of credit that deserves to be put on everybody in this industry. And it's really something where everybody has to work together. The toughest part on the independent level is when you're doing so much of this yourself. But like you said, that can be so rewarding because that's where the creativity comes from. Having to do a a scene a certain way because you don't have the resources to just hire somebody. You have no choice but to go into your brain and try and figure out how can I do this another way. So my guest is Jerry Ferretti. You're hearing his thoughts coming from his brain and his passion. So it's almost going to be a rhetorical question, Jerry. But what we see on screen, in my mind, is almost the tip of the iceberg. Lest you're on the screen, you're getting a lot of credit, a lot of kudos. Boy, you look great. You, you had a great role. You entered well with the other actors. You were dynamic and you're charismatic. But I still believe that it's the tip of the iceberg. Below that iceberg is a lot going on. You kind of touched upon that, but would you agree with that? Because a bad a bad edit can ruin a whole scene. A bad sound in terms of the sound editor. The DP may not be on his game that day. A lot has to happen to make what's on the screen successful. Totally true. And, and again, it's a group effort, but the, the smallest, shortest scene can have so much work behind it. We shot a scene in my recent film where there was a car accident uh, between a 1967 Ford Fairlane and a 1973, I don't remember the car make exactly, but obviously we couldn't wreck these cars. So we had to bring them, we drove them very close to each other. And then as they were going to make impact, we stopped. We then had to get out and slowly push the car so that it became like literally a quarter of an inch away. Then we put the footage together, we sped it up, and made a flash of light, added the sound effect. There was so much that went into this scene. We were actually filming this scene until 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's a very, very quick scene, but it's very impactful because it's the main character when he was a, a, a youngster. His girlfriend was, was killed in that car accident. So the scene is very necessary, and we had to sit here and say, well, how can we do this without wrecking two, two cars? Mm. <laughs> so, yes, there is a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. Um, and again, for a split second of a scene. Now, my previous guest said dialogue is very important to what he does as a novelist. That's Joseph Cannon talking about his book, The Accomplice, as well as his previous book, The Good German. Now, here's what I think is so important in terms of filmmaking. You're not supposed to have dead air in podcasts. You're not supposed to have dead air on radio. But I think what I call dead air in a movie, in a play, is so powerful because the actor has to speak with body language and his face and his emotions. And I think of the classic scene. We talked about this prior to coming into the studio. The last scene in Godfather 3 with Michael Corleone is sitting all alone at Piazza on a chair as an old man. Nothing is being said, but everything is being said in terms of the look of Michael Corleone 
his body language, and the overall setting. So in my mind, I'm calling it dead air. But visually, what's so powerful is just kind of getting a tight shot of facial expressions or body language. Your thoughts? I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I think it's one of the things that's lost in cinema today. Recently, Martin Scorsese said something against the Marvel film, saying they're not cinema. And I, I think people went back and forth with that, saying, uh, mis misinterpreting, I think, what he meant. And I'll give you an example. We talked about the Godfather scene, but the scene that I always uh, bring up in this conversation is in the original Rocky. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's probably my all-time favorite movie. Mickey goes to see uh, Rocky. He goes up the stairs when Rocky finally gets the chance to have this title fight. And now Mickey wants to be the man. He wants to be his manager for the fight. And, and Rocky says, oh, you wouldn't pay attention to me when I was nobody. And now that I have this fight, you want to be part of it. So Mickey leaves. He walks down the stairs and Rocky's screaming at him from the top of the stairs. And Mickey sadly goes down the stairs and walks out onto the street. The next, I don't know how long it is, I've never actually timed it, but it might be 30 seconds of silence. You see Mickey walk down the stairs, a little old dejected man, right. walks down the street, then Rocky, from a distance, comes flying down the stairs, and you just see the sidewalk, you see the street, and Rocky comes down the stairs, camera doesn't move, he runs down the street, from a distance you see him put his arm on Mickey, says something, you don't know what he says, Mickey actually is taken aback, and then Rocky, like, jogs back up the stairs. Complete silence, but there is so much that is said in that 30 seconds of silence. And I think that might be becoming a lost thing in film, where you don't see too much of that. The average film now has so many actual shots and cuts, and it's, and it's very rare that you see a camera stay stationary like that on a scene. So, yes, I do agree with that completely. Because the average film, especially the blockbusters, are frenetic. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to slow down. They may do slow motion of a car chase and bombs are going off and fires, but it's in slow motion, but it's still very frenetic. So I think I'm in agreement with you. In fact, you're educating me. I still believe slowing down a little bit, let us capture the moment, let it resonate with us, and then kind of move on if you have to speed up the narrative and get the flow going back. Because I think that's a lost art, and you just touched upon yes. that. I want to talk about one, one of the films in the film festival that I was short, that I was ambivalent about, and that's called These Birds Don't Fly South. It made me a little bit uncomfortable. I think there was a movie called What's, What's Wrong with Virginia Woolf or something like that, where the two main characters are going at each other in a very dramatic and almost hateful way. But the dialogue back and forth is really, really something. Elizabeth Taylor was in the movie. Mm -hmm. That they are going back and forth. So this movie is, is the, has a lot of dialogue as opposed to films that don't because they're going back and forth with each other. Stay in Brooklyn or move away to a warm weather place. What did you think about that film? What was your reaction to that? Because I was a little bit ambivalent, but I thought it made me think a lot about relationships between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Right. And that's exactly why the film was chosen. And it's unfortunate because that was film was made by someone. And if you notice, it's just a, a short portion of the film. Yeah. Um, and again, that was one of the problems with doing the first time film f festival was we had so many films and we, we were not able to put them all in. So we reached out to that filmmaker and said, we, you know, we really enjoyed what you did here. And it was that type of thing that made you think. And again, character driven, where you were able to see those characters on screen. And there were those moments of silence, too, between these characters where you felt you were part of what they were going through. So we asked them can we show a portion of your film? Because again, with the festivals, you have to be very careful with that because that might qualify as a New York premiere, even though you only showed a portion of it, and that makes it difficult for them to get into other festivals. So we were very happy to show that portion of the film, even though we couldn't show the whole thing. The film that I liked, the short I liked on a flood, I think was called The Session. Correct me if I don't have the right title, but it's about a robot and artificial intelligence, and he's actually going for therapy. And it, it, it resonates because it raises an issue with artificial intelligence growing and growing and growing. Um, what problems are they going to have and who's going to support them? And if they're having a tough time or they're about to be recalibrated, what can they do about, quote unquote, their existence? It, it's a fascinating thing. I've seen a, a number of films that 
touch upon this, and it's very timely with the world we live in because we are entering a world that is uh, we're almost best friends with our cell phones. People can't put them down. They'd be lost without them. It's like they're developing a personality of their own. I'm a fan of science fiction. You know, um, I go way back watching the original Star Trek. Right. And they touched on topics like this all the time. And, and then the next generation had an android on the bridge who became like a living person. And I think we're headed that way as, as a society. So, yeah, that was a, that, that was a very uh, well done short. And it mm -hmm. did take it into that whole, uh, well, he's going for therapy. And, and at first you don't realize. You're thinking it's just someone mm -hmm. sitting there going for therapy. And then you realize what's going on, really. Yeah, it was very well done. That's why it stood out in my mind. Mm -hmm. I want to give one shout out to hopefully you remember this one because you saw a tremendous amount of films. One of my previous guests on the podcast has been John Thiessen as his own foundation, John Thiessen's Children's Foundation. His son, John Thiessen Jr., had a film called, a short called Duet. Can you tell us about that? Because I didn't get to see it, but I'd like to see it in the future. Duet is, is a, it's an interesting film because it's uh, made by the Seaford, uh, students from the Seaford High right. School. All and young people. They've moved on now. Obviously, they're out of high school. And again, that was um, a film that was very moving. You know, there was a, a, a student who, who had passed. And uh, when, when one of my judges saw that, and, and she actually came to me and said, you know, did you get a chance to see this film? And I said, actually, I haven't. And she said, well, you, you got to put this film in. Like, we have to do this. And I went back and I watched it. And they were so grateful that, again, it was one of those feelings where, where we as the festival directors, and again, this was part of our goal with the festival was because we didn't want this festival to be about the festival. We wanted this festival to be about the filmmakers. And that's how I believe they should be. So even like when we were doing the Q&A, we were stepping back. We were giving the, fest the filmmakers their moment. Right. And, and those students stood up there at the stage feeling like, you know, they had accomplished something. And when the other filmmakers would come to me and say, the, the kid who directed that film, I could see him going on and being a big time director. So they're getting feedback from their peers in the industry now, which again, they wouldn't have that opportunity if there wasn't a festival where they could get that film shown. So it was very pleasurable to show that film, especially being local students who are still con continuing into this field beyond high school. Actors will tell you, whether known or unknown, the hardest thing to do is comedy. In terms of what you had at your film festival, any comedic shorts that stood out for you? Because I think the best thing you can do is laugh sometimes. That is, it's a cliche, but laughter sometimes is the best medicine. I, I was a huge fan of Robin Williams. When he passed, it was a blow to me in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But there's just something about comedy and a good comedic actor. Yes, comedians are getting movie roles, but a comedic actor, once again, it's about body language, expressions, as well as your dialogue. Any of the films resonate with you in terms of comedy? Well, let me start by saying I agree with you 100%. I, th I think uh, comedians often make the best actors because comedy is a part of our everyday life. Uh, I'm Italian. You go to an Italian funeral, what happens? You're standing by the casket laughing. So even that and very... The, and the Irish too. Right. So you, that very sad moment is filled with laughter. So if you take that out, the film can be too heavy-handed. Um, there was a film, um, the name is escaping me, uh, the, the Straight Man. Yes. Okay. Which uh, was a, it's, it's a it's about a, a comedy team like a Lewis and Martin, and it, it was as if Jerry Lewis had passed. What would Martin, as the straight man, do? And his career kind of tanked, and he um, is encouraged by a reporter who who wants to do a story on him, like many years later, and mm -hmm. he's kind of doing nothing. And the reporter comes to do a story on him, and he's like, you know, I'm I'm just a straight man. Leave me alone. She's trying to encourage him to come back into the business. And he does. So it was it was he, the filmmaker came to me afterwards and they were having a big debate. Is this a comedy or a drama? And it was that kind of a film where you really couldn't tell. It was equally divided among the people. Um, but, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a straight comedy because comedy to do a straight comedy. I always think the funniest comedy that I've ever seen is Arthur. 
the original oh, author with Dudley Moore. great. Because it's, yeah, yeah, because it was Dudley Moore also. Right. And the cast, a great cast. Great cast, and it does have bittersweet moments in it and stuff, but the laugh per minute ratio to me in that mm-hmm. movie, and that's very difficult to do, to be that funny throughout. But uh, I would say... Um, yeah, a lot of times if you can even get laughs in a comedy drama, you're doing well. And we had a few of those too, so. Well, part of comedy is pathos. Right. I mean, look at Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Look at Chaplin, all about pathos. And it was it was asylum films and stuff like that, but he was the master of that. Right. He really was. And once again, body language, which he was also an expert at, one of the greatest of all in terms of body language. Let's kind of segue to your life. What okay. led you to sit here today? And I'm just saying nothing beyond just sitting here today because, yeah, I thank you for coming in. I appreciate <laughs> that greatly. But what in your life led you to do what you're doing now? And was there a twist and turn in your life? Did you have a moment, an epiphany saying, I need to do this because something dramatic happened to me? Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in a musical household. My father was a big band musician, clarinet, sax player. So I, I grew up in a musical household. And I took to music as well, where we were conflicted because he played clarinet, big band music. I played guitar and got into Elvis. All right. So that was really how I got into um, any kind of performing. And I knew this was for me and this is what I wanted to do. That being said, I have a family of three brothers. And like I said, I have a teacher, a lawyer, an engineer. I was sort of the black sheep. You just didn't do this. You know, you did it on the side. And I did that for a long time. So I got into theater. I got into writing. I had my own murder mystery company for 10 years. I I wrote murder mysteries, but all the while, while having a a career. And I raised a family. I got married and had a family. What changed for me is I realized I had to pursue my passions 100% about six years ago when I was diagnosed with kidney cancer. And uh, I had gone through some situations in my my personal life, which I thought I had kind of hit rock bottom. And then I found out I had cancer. So... You have two choices when that happens. You either, you know, collapse or you pick yourself up. And, of course, the outcome was that – and people say you beat cancer. I was fortunate that, you know, the universe was on my side right. and, and we beat cancer. I've known so many people that have had cancer that tried very hard and didn't beat it. So as much as you can empower yourself to do this, sometimes you can't. So I'm very grateful. That's the word I think that describes me the most right now in my life is grateful. I'm grateful, as cliched as it sounds, for every single day. And when when that happened and I was able to, to, you know, I went to my brother and I said, listen, you got to take care of my girls because, you know, when I I came out of that and said, wait a minute, I'm going to be able to do this. It made me realize that how short life is, and if you're not doing everything that you're passionate about and feel that you should be doing, there's no reason not to. So I said, you know this movie that I wrote that I've been trying to get people to make? I'm going to make it. You know this this uh, screenplay that I wrote that I wanted to turn into a play? I'm going to turn it into a play. And I wrote the, I wrote the screenplay into a play. I produced it twice on Long Island. I wrote all the music to it. I made this film starting the film festival. There's nothing that's going to stand in my way at this point. And it's all really because of a complete change from that moment. I, I, it sounds crazy, but in a way, I'm glad that I got cancer. And I, and I hope that nobody out there hearing this takes that the wrong way because it's a terrible disease and I'm just one of the fortunate ones. All right. Quick answer. We're at the back end, unfortunately, of Artful Periscope. 2020, what can we look forward to in the next film festival? Well, we are are already set and running for 2020. Uh, We're going to be adding days, adding blocks. Uh, We're going to be doing it a little differently. We'll be running the films all day long. Uh, We're getting the whole community involved. Uh, we've, uh, we've already have films that are being submitted and we're, we're really, really excited about it. Uh, you can check us out at, at our website, which is nylif.com, New York, Long Island Film Festival. Or you could look, it up, look us up on uh, filmfreeway.com. All right, Jerry Freddy, thank you so much. I want to thank my guest, Joseph Cannon, the author of The Accomplice and Film Festival Maven, Jerry Ferretti. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye.
The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.